The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pot. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by chicken cosmetologist and fantasy football passive general manager and extractor of cider. And also, by the way, bona fide state and local fiscal policy wonk, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Yes, all in that order, in order of importance. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, I I shouldn't have... uh, been so pleased uh, a couple of weeks ago when I said that my team was doing well, because as anybody who follows sports knows, <laughs> you should not tempt the gods. And my team has done terrible <laughs> since then. I'm sneaking into the playoffs, but it's not looking good. <laughs> you may need to maybe be a little more activist in your, in your management. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It has been interesting. Uh, some unexpected twists and turns in the standings. Uh, a bunch of people in my family are long-suffering Detroit Lions fans, and that's been very interesting to watch uh, the last several weeks here. Then they're fully expecting that it will implode at some point in the next uh, week or two here, and the dream will die. But as an example of uh, the kind of thing that, as a manager for a fantasy football team, you may not want to just stand by and allow to happen. (laughs) So we talk a lot about infrastructure on this podcast for good reason. It's one of the most expensive and consequential things that we do in state and local finance. And generally, when we talk about infrastructure, we think roads, bridges, buildings, water sewer systems, all of those essential kinds of capital investments that state and local governments make to provide the kinds of essential services that we've come to expect. Within the last couple of years, we've seen that definition of infrastructure expand a bit. A lot of that most recently having to do with the federal legislation, the big uh, infrastructure bill that the federal government uh, passed toward the end of last year. And as a result of this now, we've seen uh, a lot of different kinds of investments fall under that umbrella called infrastructure. And one of them in particular that's been interesting to watch is in the area of broadband. We don't uh, typically think of access to the internet or access to high-speed internet as essential in the way that access to water or electricity is essential, but in so many ways it is. And there's been a recognition of I think the state and local finance community that those kinds of investments in access to broadband and access to the information superhighway are just as vital from an economic development perspective and from a quality of life perspective and even from a public safety perspective as all the other kinds of investments that we make in infrastructure. And so today we're going to talk about 
broadband investments and access to broadband and some of the recent work that's being done to try to provide better access, particularly in underserved areas. And we're going to be joined by Perry Sabaty and Krista Kanalakis from the U.S. Digital Response, which is a nonprofit that does a lot of work in the area of technology on behalf of state and local governments. Liz, you've certainly looked a lot at this from uh, both a, a research and journalism perspective, but you also have some firsthand experience when it comes to some of the unique challenges that we face when we start to think of infrastructure investments in broadband. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah, so, and certainly your point about the pandemic really being a turning point for viewing this as basic infrastructure is so spot on. I live in an area that does not have uh, fiber cable to it. It's available a mile down the road, a mile up the road. We are in a last mile area here. And so when we moved here, first of all, that concept was completely foreign to me. That was a bit of a shock. And so now we we went from the suburbs with super, super, super duper fast internet to uh, satellite internet now where for the plan that we have, because we need it for work, uh, costs twice as much for uh, minimum broadband service. And so... I mean, we talk about this later on in the show, but there is major, major funding in the infrastructure bill to expand broadband to areas like mine, but generally, you know, across the country in urban areas and particularly those where residents can't afford the cost of broadband and then rural areas where it just isn't available. And it's called the BEAD or what is it? Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program. There's 42 plus billion dollars available, each state is going to get at least $100 million, and then the rest is divvied up according to need. And that is the big bugaboo right now because the FCC has this new map out where they've tried as best as they can to get that data down on a granular level. But it's just, you know, they're coming, they're running into all these inaccuracy problems. And now lawmakers, residents, people can challenge it and kind of provide the, the data, the correct data. I have I looked at my area and and there were some inaccuracies and and it's interesting because uh, one was the the satellite provider in which we were on was the, sorry the listed speed was faster than what we actually experienced that's one issue another issue was there was a provider listed on there that does not yet provide service for our area and there, the third issue which I didn't couldn't figure out how to challenge and I imagine other people across the country have this too is. There's two cell phone providers listed on there as both, you know, count as having broadband capability. And we used to have one one of those providers when we moved here. And we, after a year or so, we switched to the other provider precisely because we could barely get service here. We certainly, I mean, we could make calls. A lot of times they were dropped. And then we certainly couldn't like check email on our phone or anything like that. And, and I remember during the pandemic when we were having issues, at, when our son was home, we were trying to do Zoom school and we were having issues with that. <laughs> our satellite service, I think it was raining or something. So that was not doing well. And I, I had like a little frustration rant on, on Facebook about it. And a friend of mine said, well, why don't you switch over to your phone? And it was like, well, that's not an option either. And so um, that I don't know how you challenge on the FCC map. And I, I imagine other places, other people in other parts of the country are having that issue too. And so without, you know, completely accurate map, and this is the, the thing for policymakers, the money that the FCC divvies out, according to me, n- might not actually be the correct amount for the actual need. And so that's that's the issue now. And kudos to the FCC for doing this because previously this was on a census tract level 
data, which is not, especially in rural areas, census tracts are huge swaths of land and, and you can have, you know, like in where I live, broadband a mile up the road and a mile down the road, but not in a certain area. And that won't get counted pre at a census tract level. So I'm glad that they are trying to get as accurate as possible with this. Yeah. And I'm glad to hear that too, on, on your behalf and on behalf of, of many, many others who are in exactly the same situation. This is, it's an age old problem with infrastructure generally, right? That especially when you start having infusions of money from other governments, those infusions of money can make a big difference if they're channeled in the right direction, if they're if they're put in the places where the need is both identified and where everyone agrees that that that, that need is the greatest. And we often forget whether it's floodplain mapping, whether it's identifying the quality or the serviceability of infrastructure, whether it's underground sewer pipes, whether it's pavement smoothness, whatever it might be in infrastructure, we sometimes have and we often don't have the right data to think about where the needs are, to think about where the investments can have the largest impact. And this is a very 21st century iteration of that exact same age old problem. So we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod our first uh, duo of guests, which we're really looking forward to, Perry Sabadi and Krista Kanalakis from U.S. Digital Response, here to tell us about some of their work in the area of broadband infrastructure. Welcome uh, to the podcast, both of you. Thanks so much. Um, we're very pleased to be here. I love being asked about fiscal issues, and as a former state budget director, I was delighted to find U.S. Digital Response, which is a fabulous organization focused on um, matching pro bono technologists with governments in need. And uh, I know a lot of these governments were in desperate straits to find the kind of tools they needed to to deal with um, many of the issues associated with remote work and remote outreach to citizens uh, during the pandemic. And that's what I've really um, been uh, excited to work on uh, with USDR, U.S. Digital Response. Krista, maybe you can say a few words about what um, you've been doing with U.S. Digital Response, and uh, we can go from there. Thanks. Uh, it's really nice to be here. I'm Krista Kanalakis, and my role at USDR is to lead the digital delivery program. And as part of that, we uh, have a mission uh, to support governments with broadband expansion. So we're really excited to share more about that with all of you. I'm really excited to have have both of you on. Uh, broadband expansion and connectivity is a personally meaningful topic to me. For, for many reasons, but uh, I think let's start. I'd like to kind of start with having you guys uh, talk about the, the brief rundown of broadband expansion challenges. Super big umbrella there, but maybe you can highlight a couple of the, the key kind of pain points in terms of expanding infrastructure in rural, urban areas and, and everywhere in between. One of the issues is there's infrastructure costs in rural areas that fail to connect people like you, Liz, to the network in a way that makes sense and, and helps you do your work every day. And there are cost issues, especially in urban areas. 
And what's interesting is these issues affect both of them, even in dense urban built areas like Chicago or Manhattan, the Bronx um, and Brooklyn and isolated rural areas where there are mountains, uh, Appalachia, we've done work in, Krista can tell us about in Alaska, availability just isn't there. You know, the broadband signal can't go around the building. It also can't go over the mountain. So that's a big issue around availability. Second major issue is access. Avail it may be available to you, but it may not be affordable because prices may not be competitive and there may only be one supplier, one satellite supplier, one wireless supplier, one wire line supplier or fiber supplier through cable. And studies have shown over the last 20 years that a particular geographic area must have two providers on two different technologies in a neighborhood in order to start getting competitive pricing. Um, so it's really interesting if you look at your state and you look at all the geographic areas that have two or three providers on two different technologies, all of a sudden the pricing gets a lot more reasonable. And that's where the future we need to be thinking about marching towards. In terms of the FCC challenge, process or the process we're going through right now. Krista, you may want to join in. Yeah. So, so with with the FCC challenge, um, we're seeing we're hearing that a lot of governments are um, navigating some tricky waters and sort of identifying where their residents are even uh, located, um, as well as um, who has access in those locations. So a lot of the work that we're doing is showing up and almost hand-holding through the dark some of our government partners as we sort of navigate some of these complicated process with um, understanding where people's accessibility and um, availability needs are. Makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> I know you're focused a lot at USDR on that affordability and accessibility question. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit more about you know, what kinds of interventions are, are you doing there? It seems like this is a, from an economics perspective and ultimately from a public finance perspective, a pretty thorny set of issues. What what types of, uh, of work are you doing uh, on behalf of consumers? Yeah, there's a really good example of a state that we're working with in the Midwest where they identified, they came to us and said, our residents are finding it hard to find um, affordable internet coverage. And luckily we have this great federal program called the Affordable Connectivity Program or ACP that gives folks um, that meet the eligibility criteria uh, a discount on their monthly inter internet program. But it's a, you know, it's a government program that can be hard to navigate um, the application for. And so this state asked us to help them um, sort of un Unveil the different options available to residents. And so when residents are like unaware of, you know, even who provides the service where they are, where their local, who their local ISP is, um, and then what in discounts are available to them, um, we came in to help. So one of the things that we did is we staffed a project, three volunteers who brought in uh, experience in design, user research, and uh, product management to come in and say, like, uh, what are what are people looking for when they're looking for um, an internet program? And we help them to build out 
uh, a prototype of a tool that will help uh, residents of that state to kind of navigate all the different discount options. So they could put in sort of their zip code and say, you know, if I live here, here are the ISPs that are available to me, here are the discounts available to me, resulting sort of what uh, discount they might be eligible for. So it's just sort of uh, demystifying that process and making it people easier for people to sort of access. That's really interesting because I can imagine that that expertise about user experience exists in government, but it definitely sounds like something where some outside help bringing that type of expertise to bear on that problem could make a big difference. Yeah, I mean, I think of it as public servants, um, and Perry, Perry will, I'm sure, agree. Public servants have a motivation to help people. Um, you know, that's why we're in public service, to meet residents where they are, but we don't often have the skills or experience or the methodologies that are kind of used in, in the technology sector. And so that's really where USDR can come in to help. We're bringing in this idea of user research and, and um, interviewing and, and how do you incorporate insights from residents into a product. Um, and so it's sort of building that muscle for government so that they can then uh, do that kind of work themselves to understand their their residents' needs. I know we have a couple of uh, kind of broader budget related questions, but, but, but before we run off into that, I wanted to circle back with your mention of the FCC map, because there's this great story in Route 50 last week or the week before about some of the, the, the issues with challenging the, the data on that map. And while it's wonderful, it's wonderful that the FCC is doing this and trying to get more granular data on broadband rather than by the census tract, which is what it was before. Can you maybe shed some more light on why there are still portions of the map that are so so drastically off? So um, some of the issues um, that we've seen with the FCC challenge or the FCC map and the quality of the map are actually address file issues. For example, many locations on the map are garages, not homes. So you'll see all the dots along a particular street are all on top of garages or vacant properties. Um, and the reason that's true is because the maps that they're matching have either been slightly mismatched and need to be adjusted, or it's based on outdated geographic information. But that's, you know, that's something where, you know, it's off by 15 feet. But you're sitting there going, well, I'm glad we got a lot of inter a lot of garages connected to the internet, right, in South Chicago. One of the issues with that is when you're doing the population overlays, where you're required to report as part of the uh, broadband equity or the bead program, you're required to report on the population you're serving versus the population that's actually accessing the service that you're providing. And so these issues with the maps are going to have an impact on those performance metrics. Those performance metrics are gonna show all of us how effectively this money has been spent to bring broadband to the least connected of our citizens. So that's one reason why these address file issues are going to be critical to resolving. And one of the problems with this process is we're spending so much money so fast, 
we don't have enough time to resolve those issues and get a strong level of community engagement, right? So that state policymakers and others are as intimate with the gaps in service as those like you, Liz, that are suffering from those gaps in services. Another issue I think is a real level of confusion about what a successful challenge of that map might be, right? In other words, so you find something how do you accumulate the data and what data is it that the FCC will deem um, successful in challenging? And I, Krista, I know you've worked with a group in California on this. Yeah, there, we, have a, we have a great uh, engagement that's um, underway in flight with, with a county that um, kind of addresses both of those issues in some ways. It's a really rural county that the actual locations where people need to access internet don't necessarily even exist on a, a address file. So in a lot of rural communities, um, people use PO boxes. They don't necessarily have um, the data set of where there's actual broadband serviceable locations or the fabric. And so that creates a pretty um, interesting challenge for governments who are trying to get folks access to the internet. And so um, what we're doing with um, that county is sort of engaging in a, a planning sprint where we're going to be mapping out um, how the county will prepare participate in the 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 FCC um, fabric challenge process and and really like I said sort of walking hand holding with them in the dark and looking at what kind of data sets do they have available um, we're potentially looking at um, 911 call data addresses and then also uh, working with them to understand um, as Perry said some of the requirements behind what makes a su successful challenge and sort of helping them, figure out, okay, based on the existing data that they have and what makes a successful challenge, how can we sort of issue some challenges for them and sort of start to figure out what works. And then over time, you know, the role of USDR can be to sort of replicate these things at scale across the country. And how much time do governments have to, to challenge the FCC map? Um, well, some of them are coming up. There's two different deadlines. One of them is in January and then one of them is ongoing. So I think there's uh, sort of a rolling deadline um, in some cases. Um, but I think the, the hope would be that we can get some of those in really quickly so that um, we can start to learn and then share those learnings so that others can then benefit from it and figure out, okay, what are the data, what's the data that we need to start collecting or that we need to go out and, and find so that we can, all the governments can start submitting sort of these successful challenges. It's such an interesting thing too, as you're describing that, because certain types of interactions with the federal government are, I think, probably at this point known and routine and not maybe not comfortable, but not totally uncomfortable if you're a local government challenging the census, uh, challenging floodplain maps, those kinds of things. I can imagine though that this is different. This, this is a, this is a different space, different skill set, different different knowledge, and so having someone to just go through the process with you uh, probably provides some reassurance that a lot of local elected officials would would like to have before jumping into that. Yeah, it's really interesting when you when you raise that. That's fascinating. To, to I'd never thought of that. Yeah, this is a challenge process, just like floodplains or census. Now, on floodplains, you just have to have a really good mapper, and you got to have a lot of weather data, right? 
Okay, that's easy. Do you need a lot of community engagement? Well, yes and no, but usually no, unless you're on a barrier island and it's a huge issue when people have built their big houses, right? <laughs> In the middle of a hurricane area. But um, so that's one type of community engagement. Census is again, you know, sort of the place where you're looking at discrete facts. This data set says this number of people live here, right? This many people pay rent at this address and you have only counted this many people, right? So again, that's, compare, that's comparing what's there versus more like this challenge process because it requires reaching out to the community, involving them in answering questions about availability and access, and then turning that data into something that you can use to challenge the FCC's assumptions that it used in building the map. So I, you know, it's it, in a sense, when you think about how huge the census challenge discipline has become, in the past three cycles, we're doing this challenge process for the very first time for money we are likely not to see again in the next generation. And so that's, you know, diving off the high dive, right? At the swimming pool for your first dive, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's, that's kind right. of terrifying when you, when you lay it all out like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, Perry, as a former state budget director, uh, I'm sure you, when you start to study these issues, you start to see dollar signs and big dollar signs, particularly at the state level. And of course, in our in our classes, we teach our students kind of rule number one is be careful about using one-time money for what could be ongoing expenses. It sounds like that's exactly the situation we're in now. So if you put your uh, state budget director hat back on for a second. What are the kinds of challenges and opportunities that you're thinking about as you look at this landscape? We want to look at how states pay for broadband today. It's a little known fact that states actually do pay for an enormous amount of broadband to link every single one of their universities, typically, and to provide really good internet service for streaming, for remote learning, for supercomputing, for telemedicine in rural areas. And so many university systems started to invest themselves in middle mile um, in order to more affordably connect multiple campuses. Now, I think you're based in Chicago, so you're probably familiar with Illinois. I think it's called CenturyLink, which links Champaign-Urbana, Springfield, Evanston. I mean, it, it links all of the Illinois state universities together. It's middle mile. In other words, the state of Illinois paid to lay the fiber. That's one reason why. So many of the early internet intervent, uh, innovations began there because they had so much connectivity. In my state, Ohio, the Ohio universities realized, especially with our Appalachian campuses, we needed to make an investment ourselves in middle mile. Now, Ohio did not build its own fiber as Illinois did, but instead put together a co-op, if you will, of all the universities to go in and pool their demand so they could get broadband cheaply from providers. 
And that co-op, which used to, which was called Ornette, still is, actually expanded to multiple Midwest states. It's now called the Quilt Project. And they all massively buy from the same peering networks so that they can command extremely low prices for broadband. So now why have they done that? They've done that because for higher ed, in my state, it costs 15 to $20 million a year to buy that broadband and maintain it just for higher education. For K to 12, where elementary and uh, middle schools are in much more rural areas, even though they're piggybacking on that higher ed network, they've got to add another 15 or $20 million in last mile access to get every one of those school districts attached to the internet. So you don't see a line item in most state budgets that says broadband. It's just, it's hidden in all these places. But, you know, I've just showed you that, you know, for one state, you're looking at 40, $50 million a year that's spent on broadband. So uh, it's great to have all this money to build out the internet and to build out availability. But one thing that the feds are doing through their affordable connectivity program, and many states also do, is provide subsidies to lower income individuals so that they can get on the internet affordably. And those subsidies are what is going to be left when this one-time money is gone. And um, that will be an ongoing effort for states to finance um, over the long term is how are we making it uh, available and accessible. I can imagine there's the budgeted cost, but then there's also the question of the opportunity costs of, of not acting, right? I can imagine that there's you know, tremendous economic development and ultimately state and local revenue questions tied up in this too. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one of the things to think about is a way this begins reducing service costs for government is in remote areas, if you can start providing citizen services online instead of in line, providing those services is far more efficient and effective over the internet than it is face-to-face -face in long lines um, where people are paying for parking and gas and everything else. The reality is we're gonna improve government services by having broadband everywhere because it's gonna allow us to provide really good services to people even in the most remote communities and bring them up to the same level as if you were down the block uh, in Chicago. Um, we're kind of touching on, a, on, an, on the area of the issue of equity. And so I wanna expand on that a little bit. You talked about hidden broadband prices and budgets. Are there hidden risks or equity concerns in regards to this federal funding that we're talking about for broadband expansion? Yeah, I mean, I think communities don't necessarily trust that the governments will be able to deliver in a way that is uh, equitable and meeting all of their diverse needs. So that's sort of one of the, I think, big risks of, of this big investment that we have in front of us. And then there's also this uh, sense that 
governments might be over-promising and under-delivering, uh, particularly in some of the hard-to-reach uh, areas and, and areas with kind of more difficult geographic constraints. And just the, the needs across the country are so different. So rural and urban needs are vastly different from infrastructure to community building to how government communicates with communities. Um, and so there is sort of this distinct difference in broadband needs uh, even with the state of inf infrastructure and uh, and how communities like to engage, I think sort of also creates a lot of challenges with this big bucket of funding that, that folks need to send spend really fast. An equity point of view in many states immediately brings up issues around the constitutionality of their school funding uh, base. And for a state like my state, where that's an ongoing issue, all of a sudden, the availability and quality of broadband for a poor school district in rural Appalachia is going to be, become a constitutionally challengeable issue because it will go to a changing and improved view of what an adequate education is which is the wording in our constitution. Every child in the state is entitled to an adequate um, education. And to the extent that as we move forward and begin to, to see the promise of universal broadband uh, become met, we are going to see ongoing tensions inside state governments as states grapple with the issue of uh, adequacy, that will be the next major challenge, I would imagine, in the school uh, funding sort of wars out there. Um, I mean, we've, we've talked a bit about rural, but uh, Krista, are there any urban affordability projects in that category that, that you all are working on that you can share? So USDR works with both um, cities and with rural communities. And in cities, we see some unique challenges um, that uh, we can help with. So one is around just uh, figuring out how we can help residents in cities get access to more affordable internet. Um, luckily, we have this a wonderful program from the federal government called the Affordable Connectivity Program, which for residents that are eligible, they, they can get a, a good chunk of their internet bill um, off every month. And so, uh, but it's a pretty complicated government program to, um, to apply for. And so one of the things that we're doing is working with cities who often want to reach out to specific communities in their city. So whether it's immigrants or um, seniors or uh, low-income folks in, in public housing, we're sort of helping to uh, create communications and targeted outreach uh, strategies for them to help these residents understand what some of those uh, options are for them to get a, a more affordable internet access and, and then helping them do some of the, create some of those outreach materials that will get folks uh, online more quickly. Well, thank you so much to Perry Sabaty and Krista Kanawakis from U.S. Digital Response for taking the time to share some thoughts on broadband, how we pay for it, and some of the challenges and opportunities in that space. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a great time. Thank you so much for your insights this morning.
Well, thank you to Perry Sabaty and Krista Kenalakis once again for telling us all about the challenges and opportunities in broadband infrastructure. Really, really interesting conversation. And of course, from a public finance perspective, a potentially very expensive and consequential set of investments. So we always like to have conversations about those sorts of cutting edge issues. So it's time once again for extra credit. This is our audience question segment. And uh, this time our question has to do with public-private partnerships. Hi, this is Elliot Danis, and I'm calling from sunny South Florida. My question is, the phrase public-private partnership is used often in state and local finance. What exactly does that phrase mean? Great question. Public-private partnerships, indeed, is one of these terms that is used a lot. Some would say overused and used in so many different ways that the meaning of that term has become, I think, kind of diluted and uh, maybe even convoluted in some cases. In the world of infrastructure, and particularly the public finance side of infrastructure, when we say public-private partnerships, we typically mean a different kind of procurement method for infrastructure. So we mean a, a different way of going out and paying for infrastructure investments. So in, in the typical infrastructure procurement setup, if I'm, say, a city government, and I want to hire some private partners to go out and build a new, say, water treatment facility for us, I go out and I make plans. I go out and I hire contractors to build that facility for me. And then I operate that facility. And then if I need maintenance done, I go out and I hire contractors to do maintenance on that facility. But for the most part, I, as a government, am operating that facility and I'm bringing in help as needed to, to help with the construction and maintenance of, of that piece of, of infrastructure. In public-private partnerships, we tend to see a different kind of arrangement where a government will not necessarily go to a private partner and say, do X, Y, Z, but rather they'll go to a private partner and they'll say, we need the following deliverables. We need X many millions of gallons of water that have been treated at some level of quality. And we don't necessarily care how you do it. We don't necessarily care what types of technologies you do. We will pay you a certain amount, private partner, to deliver this deliverable for us. And when that happens, then our private partners take on a very different type of risk, right? We share the risks of delivering that service and managing that asset with our private partners in a very different way than we do when governments themselves are in charge of all of the different aspects of designing, building, operating, maintaining uh, a piece of infrastructure. So when we say public-private partnerships, we're talking typically about an arrangement where our private partners are taking on more of that risk. They're more involved in the operations and the maintenance and the financing of infrastructure than they than they typically are. Now, there's lots of different types of, of what we call P3s, public-private partnership arrangements. Different types of infrastructure lend themselves differently to uh, different effectiveness. There have been some very uh, colorful examples of successful uses of public-private partnerships and lots of examples where P3 arrangements have really fallen apart because the risks weren't shared properly, because the, po the political winds shifted. And so it's one of these uh, terms where it can mean very different things depending on the context. And it's important, again, from a public finance perspective to understand where the money is coming from and where the money is going. Now, we're talking today about broadband and broadband is a really, really interesting situation around infrastructure P3s. There've been several attempts 
to have public-private partnerships brought to bear on the construction of both fiber optic networks, some of these last mile challenges that we've talked about, and even in some cases, standing up uh, government-backed local internet service providers. So we've seen public-private partnerships in, in every phase of the broadband infrastructure provision chain. And one of the things that we've seen to make that happen is lots of different types of dollars thrown into the mix, lots of federal money, different types of utility fees. And also, and I know Liz, you've uh, talked about this a little bit in some prior work, you know, the, the use of some of our existing municipal finance tools to try to do public-private partnerships or facilitate public-private partnerships a little bit differently than we're used to. What have you seen around that, particularly in the broadband space? So yeah, there's a couple of different things that have that are are intriguing. The the one most interesting to me though is was a, a change in the infrastructure bill last year to what are called private activity bonds or PABs. It is essentially when a government can issue not tax exempt bonds on behalf of a private company doing a project because the project is in the public interest. A lot of times it's used in education, hospitals. The infrastructure bill expanded it to include broadband as an allowable use. And when I was speaking with Emily Brock at the from the GFOA about this last year, I mean, she she couldn't underscore enough like how huge this was for governments because there's a lot of last mile type projects or fiber to the home if you have a, you know, a really long driveway that that governments don't really have a hand in necessarily like they can lay all the line and all that but then that private part that's not on the utility uh, right of way governments still don't have control over that would be under the jurisdiction of you know whatever whatever company is is in that area but this expansion of the PABs would allow for a wireless or a fiber provider to work with the government to get a lower interest rate and all the, all the benefits of tax exempt bonds that the municipal market has. Uh, government issues that, the provider pays that back, and it's lower cost of debt for the provider to go ahead and make that final connection of broadband to two homes. And so that is something that, I mean, talk about super nuanced, but it's critically important. Uh, I think, especially in areas where you just have a little bit left to go. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like the public interest part of that is really an economic development question, right? Having folks who are otherwise not connected to broadband uh, connected to broadband is going to provide all kinds of new opportunities for for work, for recreation, for education, and arguably that's in that's in the public interest. So that's an interesting, slight but really consequential expansion of the philosophy underlying how and when we use different types of tax exempt debt, particularly in this context. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, 
farmersfieldonline.com and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter at LizFarmerTweets. And thanks, as always, to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.